Good afternoon. My name is Layla Sadat, James Carr Professor of International Criminal Law at Washington University in St. Louis, Director of the Whitney R. Harris World Law Institute, and Special Advisor to ICC Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda on Crimes Against Humanity. I'm really privileged to be giving this lecture for the UN Audiovisual Library and hope that you will uh, be able to stay with me. It's a little long, but it's a very important subject. Today's lecture is on the question of heads of state and other government officials before the International Criminal Court. As you know, the adoption of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court just over 20 years ago now marked what I call an uneasy revolution in international law and practice because for the first time in history, 120 states voted to create a permanent court of last resort to hold accountable individuals accused of committing the most serious crimes under international law, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and in the future, the crime of aggression. The court's jurisdiction over aggression was activated on 17th July, 2018, and so the statute now includes all four core crimes, each of which may be said to have the status of use Kogans. These are crimes defined by international law, stricto sensu, that protect the fundamental values of the international legal community as a whole and articulate a jus punende of that international community. A fundamental principle of the Rome Statute is that all defendants are equal before it. Following the example of Article 4 of the Genocide Convention, Article 27.1 of the Rome Statute which is entitled Irrelevance of Official Capacity, provides, and I'll quote the language, quote, this statute shall apply equally to all persons without distinction based on official capacity, and in particular, official capacity is head of state or government, member of government or parliament, elected representative or government official, shall in no case exempt a person from criminal responsibility. This provision codifies the customary international law rule that whatever immunities an official might otherwise have under international law cannot be pled as a bar or a defense to criminal responsibility, ratione materiae, before the ICC. Article 27.2 of the Rome Statute complements Article 27.1 as follows. It provides that immunities or special procedural rules that might attach to the official capacity of a person under national or international law shall not bar the court from exercising its jurisdiction. Article 27 has been referred to by former High Commissioner for Human Rights, Prince Zaid Rad al-Hussein, as, quote, the most profound article ever to be written into a multilateral treaty. And yet, surprisingly, during the ICC negotiations, according to Per Saland, who had chaired the working group responsible for its inclusion, it was uncontested throughout the discussions and easy to agree upon. The International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda had similar provisos in their statutes and found that the provision represented a, one of customary international law, as did the Special Court for Sierra Leone in the Charles Taylor case. This is, surprisingly, unsurprising. As was true of the ad hoc tribunals, the substantive rules of the Rome Statute must be grounded in customary international law given the ability of the Security Council to refer situations involving non-states parties and their nationals to their court. The Council can't create rules of international law, it can only apply them. Today, this easily accepted and unsurprising provision of Article 27 is hotly disputed. Individuals on the receiving end of the court's investigation, subpoenas, and arrest warrants have protested its application to them, particularly in light of Article 98's potential application, and have successfully had their governments, over which they often preside, take up their cause. This has led several states' parties to the statute to assert that they are unable and unwilling to surrender individuals who might have immunity under international law to the ICC, without the consent of their state of nationality. 
The most recent example was the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which pleaded, quote, fundamental rules and principles of international law that required it to refuse to execute an arrest warrant of the court for former Sudanese President al-Bashir on the basis of his alleged immunity under international law. Although the kingdom's argument was cast procedurally in terms of the interaction and interplay between Articles 98 and 27 of the Rome Statute, the brief essentially asserts that heads of state remain immune under international law so long as they remain in office, whether the jurisdiction before which they are sought is a national or an international court. Today's lecture examines the original understanding of Article 27 and Article 98 and their inclusion in the Rome Statute. It takes a look at the current controversy regarding their application by the court and endeavors to resolve the existing controversy by reference to first principles of international criminal law. Part four of my lecture will also address, albeit somewhat briefly, the actual decision of the ICC Appeals Chamber on Jordan's appeal in the al-Bashir case, which found that President al-Bashir of Sudan could not benefit from immunity before the court and that Jordan was therefore required to surrender him. Of course, it's impossible in this brief lecture to explore an entire decade of debate on the subject, but I hope to touch on some of the most essential points. I conclude that the current efforts to rewrite the meaning of Article 27 actually represent an effort to change customary international law and impose post facto a new interpretive gloss on Article 27, fundamentally changing its meaning and scope. It is the view of this uh, professor that doing so informally is inconsistent with the canons of treaty interpretation applicable to the Rome Statute and therefore cannot be effectuated by the court's judiciary, but would instead require an amendment to the statute implemented by the state's parties to the Rome Statute. Such an amendment, of course, would arguably work irreparable harm to the statute itself and the social values and policies that the Rome Statute protects. I conclude that to the extent states believe the ICC's investigation and proceedings infringe upon their sovereignty, the proper solution is for them to work to prevent the commission of Rome Statute crimes and in cases in which atrocity crimes have been committed to bring cases against the perpetrators in their national so let's take a look at the original understanding, that is, when the statute was adopted in 1998. The treaty that was adopted in 1998 was the product of many years of negotiation and decades of prior drafts, scholarly writings, and political and intellectual debate. Generally speaking, early instruments setting out rules for the conduct of war did not suggest the idea of individual criminal responsibility for their breach, although there are accounts of war crimes trials that are centuries old. So if we take, for example, the 1907 Hague Convention, it suggested interstate reparations as a remedy for violations of the rules. But since that seemed insufficient to prevent their abuse during the Great War of 1917, the 1919 Commission on the Responsibility of the Authors of the War and on Enforcement of Penalties established by the Allied Powers after the war concluded that there should be an international high tribunal for the trial of enemy persons alleged to have committed, quote, offenses against the laws and customs of war and the offenses of humanity. The United States dissenters to that report objected not only to the conceptual revolution it offered, but alleged that heads of state in particular could not be brought before an international court, but were only morally responsible to mankind and only legally responsible to their own people as their agent, to whom they answered in law. Head of state immunity at the time was seen as a core principle of sovereignty, an extension of the Sun King's apocryphal statement, l'état c'est moi. It was thus unsurprising that although the Treaty of Versailles provided for the trial of the Kaiser following Germany's defeat, the Netherlands nonetheless refused his extradition. 
Most efforts to establish an international criminal court following World War I did not clearly address the question of head of state immunity. The ILA drafts of 1924 and 1926 omitted any reference, although the 1926 draft proposed an article on the diplomatic immunities of court personnel when traveling to or from The Hague, and proposed both state and individual criminal responsibility. The 1928 draft of the International Association of Penal Law was also silent. It was not until the 1941 draft of the London International Assembly that there was an explicit mention of crimes committed by heads of state, and Article 7 of the London Charter for the IMT at Nuremberg picked up that draft and expressly included a provision regarding the potential immunity of a head of state or other government official. And it's worth taking a look at the language. It provides the official position of defendants, whether as heads of state or responsible officials in government departments, shall not be considered as freeing them from responsibility or mitigating punishment. This provision was, of course, contested by the accused, but it was accepted by the tribunal, which famously opined in sweeping terms that the very essence of the charter is that individuals have international duties which transcend the national obligations of obedience imposed by the individual state. He who violates the laws of war cannot obtain immunity while acting in pursuance of the authority of the state if the state in authorizing action moves outside its competence under international law. This holding was adopted by the International Law Commission in its 1950 formulation of the Nuremberg Principles and is also found in Article 4 of the Genocide Convention of 1948. It suggests that since international law establishes whatever immunities might exist in the first place, it can also remove them in the case of war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against peace, and genocide, whether prosecuted before an international court like the IMT or the International Penal Tribunal contemplated by Article 6 of the Genocide Convention, or a national court exercising jurisdiction uh, on the state of the territory in which an act of genocide may have occurred. Thus, the Nuremberg Charter and Judgment prevailed over the objections of 1919 and became understood as both customary international law and codified in international treaties. It subsequently found voice in the statutes of the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia. So given this backdrop, it's easy to understand why irrelevance of official position was simply not a major issue during the negotiation of the Rome Statute. The 1993 report of the ILC's working group on a draft statute omitted the question entirely because the commission had bifurcated work on the court from its work on the draft code of crimes against the peace and security of mankind, which had, it had been engaged upon for many years. The same was true for the 1994 draft statute for the court elaborated by the International Law Commission, which was also silent on the question of irrelevance of official position. That's because, in the words of the Commission, the 1994 draft ICC statute was intended to be primarily an adjectival and procedural instrument. So to find the International Law Commission's text on irrelevance of official position, you have to renvoi to the 1996 Draft Code of Crimes. And there we find in Draft Article 7 the same provision that we found in Article 7 of the Nuremberg Charter to wit that the official position of an individual who commits a crime against the peace and security of mankind, even if he acted as head of state or government, does not relieve him of criminal responsibility. In addition, if one looks at the commentary, not only do we find a substantive provision on immunity, but the commentary concludes, and I quote, the absence of any procedural immunity with respect to prosecution or punishment in appropriate judicial proceedings is an essential corollary of the absence of any substantive immunity or defense. It would be paradoxical to prevent an individual from invoking his individual pos 
position to avoid responsibility for a crime only to permit him to invoke the same consideration to avoid the consequences of this responsibility. Once the General Assembly established a preparatory committee to take up the ILC's 1994 draft, the PREPCOM essentially consolidated the work on the court with the work on the draft code. And throughout the various iterations of the drafting process, precursors of what became Article 27 of the Rome Statute were present in each new iteration of the draft. This was not true, by the way, of Article 98, which was introduced late in the negotiations at the 1998 Diplomatic Conference by Singapore and was inserted in the statute largely without change or debate. Although sometimes it's hard to piece together the legislative history of the Rome Statute, as particularly during the PREPCOM process, many discussions were held informally or documents were circulated without being an official UN conference document number, there's very little change from iteration to iteration with respect to the provision that ultimately became Article 27. And contemporaneous writings about the negotiated of the statute indicate that Article 98 subsequent inclusion was in no way meant to undermine the fundamental principles codified in Article 27. Rather, it was meant to allow a state requested to surrender a diplomatic credit to it or a search of diplomatic premises within its borders to comply with its pre-existing international legal obligations in doing so. In the words of two delegates to the Rome Conference, quote, Article 98 does not reduce the effect of Article 27 in any way. A person sought for arrest or prosecution by the court cannot claim an immunity based on official capacity, nor does such capacity affect the court's jurisdiction over the person. States ratifying the Rome Statute after its 1998 adoption accepted the common, article, the common understanding of Article 27 as removing head of state and other official immunities in front of the court. France, for example, was required by the French Constitutional Council to amend its constitution to ratify the statute. The council found that Article 27 of the Rome Statute was inconsistent with the legal regime set forth in the constitution, which guaranteed immunity from criminal prosecution for the French president, members of parliament, and other members of the gouvernement. Additionally, because the ICC could be seized in a case involving the application of a French amnesty law or French statute of limitation, the Council found that constitutional revision was required. And in response, France amended its constitution by an overwhelming vote of 848 to 6 and proceeded to ratify the treaty by a similarly overwhelming majority. This is because I think it's fair to say that as the late Otto Trifterer noted in the very first edition of his commentary on the Rome Statute, the position that had developed in international law had to be contrasted where domestic law allowed for head of state immunity. The International Court of Justice affirmed this distinction between international jurisdictions and domestic jurisdictions in the Erodia case, noting in key paragraph 61 that, quote, immunities enjoyed under international law by an incumbent or former minister do not represent a bar to criminal proceedings. In respect to criminal proceedings before international criminal courts where they have jurisdiction, including the future International Criminal Court created by the 1998 Rome Convention. In other words, the ICJ recognized the distinction between prosecution at the national and international level. So what happened to this common understanding of Article 27 and 98 after its adoption in 1998? Well, this understanding was challenged almost immediately upon the statute's entry into force in 2002. As I noted earlier in the lecture, Article 98 had really been the object of very little attention during the statute's negotiation. But it was relied upon by one state, the United States, to negotiate something the U.S. called bilateral immunity agreements, or BIAs, with other states to immunize its nationals from prosecution by the court. The United States relied upon Article 98 for this. 
Although the European Parliament and other authorities took the view that the U.S. BIAs were inconsistent with the Rome Statute because of the blank and immunities that they conferred, by 2006, only four years after the statute had entered into force, the U.S. had negotiated nearly 100 such agreements. As the U.S. BIA campaign was getting underway, the court also received referrals of its very first situations. They came from African states' parties, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and the Central African Republic. The first prosecutor welcomed these self-referrals as they involved situations involving the ongoing commission of atrocity crimes and the cooperation and invitation of the territorial state to intervene. Although reliance upon the self-referral system clearly involves certain risks for the court, about which many other scholars have commented, it also provided the court with its first defendants and an opportunity to show that it could work. Although commentators sometimes complain that each of the three cases were located in Africa, African sovereignty was arguably protected because African leaders had themselves invoked the jurisdiction of the ICC. Moreover, the individuals investigated and ultimately prosecuted in those particular cases were high-ranking leaders of rebel organizations who could not realistically claim the protection of international law in terms of diplomatic immunity or other immunities, and Article 27 therefore just didn't come into play. Following the indictment and the issuance of warrants arrest against former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, however, the Article 27 question surged to the fore. These warrants, issued in 2009 and 2010, provoked an intense backlash among some governments that the court was, quote, targeting Africa. President Omar al-Bashir himself did not accept the legitimacy of the ICC's legal activity and argued vociferously in both political and legal fora that as a head of state, and particularly of a non-state party, he was immune from prosecution before the ICC. The first pretrial chamber hearing his complaint disagreed. It found that Article 27 answered the question of his immunity and concluded without much analysis at all, that he was not immune and Sudan's status as a non-state party had no effect on the court's jurisdiction. President al-Bashir, however, continued to challenge the court and its jurisdiction, traveling widely to ICC state and non-states parties alike. The registry of the court, meanwhile, sent requests to cooperation to all states' parties to the Rome Statute to effectuate his arrest. Al-Bashir nonetheless traveled to Malawi in 2011, after which the registrar of the court issued a note verbal reminding Malawi of its obligations of cooperation and inviting consultations from government in case of any difficulty that might arise in carrying out the arrest. Malawi responded that as a sitting head of state, President al-Bashir was entitled to all privileges and immunities under public international law, including freedom from arrest and prosecution. And in addition, the government of Malawi suggested Article 27 could not apply to President al-Bashir because Sudan wasn't a party to the Rome Statute. Malawi underscored that it was simply following the position of the African Union on this question. Pretrial Chamber 1 of the ICC rejected Malawi's arguments, which rely primarily on Article 98.1 of the statute, although Malawi seemed, like Jordan more recently, to rely upon President al-Bashir's inherent and, in its view, inviolable immunity under public international law. The pretrial chamber noted that following the precedent of the Nuremberg and Tokyo Tribunal, as well as the sources I've listed earlier, immunity of former sitting heads of state cannot be invoked to oppose a prosecution by an international court, whether or not the state in party is the state in question is a party to the Rome Statute. The court observed as well that the increasing acceptance of the Rome Statute by states, including the provisions of Article 27 and 27.1 and 2, reinforced its view that the international community's commitment in rejecting immunity in circumstances where international courts seek arrest for international crimes has reached a critical mass and found that customary international law creates an exception to head of state immunity when international courts seek a head of state's arrest for the commission of international crimes.
In a second opinion issued on the same day, this time involving President al-Bashir's travels to the Republic of Chad, pretrial chamber one recited the relevant provisions of its decision regarding Malawi and came to the same conclusion. As I mentioned, Malawi and Chad argue that their actions were mandated by a resolution of the African Union intended to limit prosecutions against heads of state. The AU had decided in 2009 to request a comparative analysis of the implications of the practical application of Articles 27 and 98, the purpose of which was to move the court towards assessing regional input in determining whether or not to proceed with prosecution, particularly against senior state officials. At the eighth session of the court's Assembly of States Parties in 2009, South Africa advanced a proposal on behalf of all African parties to the Rome Statute to extend the power to defer ICC cases to the UN General Assembly. There was very little support voiced for this proposal at the ASP. The decision by the ICC prosecutor to open an investigation into post-election violence that had occurred in Kenya in 2007 and the court's approval of the prosecutor's request further inflamed the ongoing tension between the African Union and the court. The members of the AU, meeting as heads of state, responded over the next several years by taking additional decisions, reiterating their criticism of the al-Bashir arrest warrants, requesting members to amend Article 16 of the Rome Statute to permit a UN General Assembly deferral of situations under Article 16. Although it's hard to know whether the legal effect of the AU decisions are binding, they are binding on AU members. Many provisions of the AU decisions that were actually taken either request or urge non-cooperation. Thus, though they're all uh, they're undoubtedly of great political relevance, the formal legal effect of the AU decisions is unclear vis-a-vis AU member states. Moreover, one can see that the formal positions of the African Union espoused regarding the Sudan and Kenya situations were not shared by all African states, many of whom expressed concern or opposition to them either in the African Union meetings themselves or explicitly or implicitly in meetings of the ICC Assembly of States parties. And this was true as well of African civil society organizations. At the same time, civil society organizations continue to protest the actions of the Kenyan government and the AU and international NGOs supported Kenyan civil society. In 2013, the long-awaited Security Council resolution on a deferral in the Kenya case was put to a vote and voted down. Seven ICC non-party states voted for deferral. Eight states, all ICC states parties joined by the United States, abstained, and the resolution failed. So returning now to the ICC Assembly Assembly of States parties the following year, the Kenyan government pressed its case, this time arguing that Kenyatta should not have to be present at his trial due to his obligations as a head of state. The ICC Assembly amended Rule 134 in November 2013 to add three new provisions to the ICC's trial provision, including a special rule, Rule 134 for an accused who is mandated to fulfill extraordinary public duties at the highest national level, and that individual may request the trial chamber to be excused and represented counsel only. This last provision is a special procedural concession to high-ranking government officials, which might be inconsistent with the principle of equality embedded in the statute itself. Although it's maybe worth noting that even national jurisdictions, such as the United States, do take into account interference with the office of the presidency in examining requests for relief and crafting their judgments. Interestingly, the Kenyan national courts asked to rule on the issue of Omar al-Bashir's immunity in Kenya, found the Rome Statute required his arrest because state immunity is accorded only to sovereign acts and is not available if the individual is brought to bear um, to account for international crimes. The appeals court and the lower court found that the Kenyan constitution, legislation, and international law required al-Bashir's arrest and surrender to the ICC. Meanwhile, 
President al-Bashir continued to travel widely and continued to challenge his arrest. He attended a common market for Eastern and Southern Africa summit in Kinshasa, and the DRC refused to execute the warrants pending against him. The DRC argued that he had been invited by the African Union and could not, uh, and in the DRC's view, Article 98.1 of the statute required it to obtain the waiver of the Sudanese government to surrender President al-Bashir, given his immunity under customary international law as a head of state. The pretrial chamber of the ICC asked to rule upon this found that Article 27.2 could not apply to non-states parties to the Rome Statute as they had not adhered to the statute, but relied upon Security Council Resolution 1593 ordering the government of Sudan to fully cooperate with the court as implicitly wavering al-Bashir's immunity. It further found that any conflict between the obligation not to arrest President al-Bashir stemming from the AU Treaty would be trumped by Article 25 and 103 of the UN Charter and referred the DRC's non-compliance to the Assembly of States Parties and the Secretary General of the United Nations. So one can see in this case a shift away from the Nuremberg Consensus, but still the same holding, no immunity before the ICC or at least a requirement of arrest and surrender. Following this decision, the African Union then adopted something known as the Malibu Protocol, which is um, the part of the proposed statute of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. And this provision provides that, quote, no charges shall be commenced or continued before the court against any serving head of state or government or anybody acting or entitled to act in such capacity or other senior state officials based on their functions during their tenure in office. This part of the Malibu Protocol, by which the yet-to-be-established African Court of justice and human rights could acquire jurisdiction over international and transnational crimes is not yet in force. It's been signed by 15 states and ratified by none. But it is a clear effort to change Article 27 within the context of the AU and its member states. So in June 2015, the question of President al-Bashir's immunity surfaced again. This time in South Africa, the government of which permitted him to attend an AU summit in South Africa. South Africa's high court this time issued an interim order barring President al-Bashir from leaving South Africa in order to hear an application by the South African Litigation Center to force authorities to arrest him. The ICC called upon South Africa, a state party, to detain President al-Bashir and, quote, spare no effort ensuring the ex execution of the arrest warrant. Instead, the South African government permitted him to fly out of the country while the High Court was hearing the application to arrest him. Following he the hearing, the High Court held that President al-Bashir should have been detained, and the government's action were roundly contemned not only by the High Court judges, but more than 100 civil society organizations and the international community. Again, the case came to the ICC pretrial chambers, and pretrial chamber two this time was seized with the question of South Africans' alleged non-compliance. And it was asked whether a formal finding of non-compliance should once again be sent to the ICC ASP or the Security Council. South Africa challenged the reasoning of the DRC decision, arguing that the Security Council resolution 1593, could not constitute a waiver of al-Bashir's immunity, and that the chamber should call upon the UN Security Council to ask the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion on the question of Resolution 1593's meeting. Pretrial Chamber 2 responded and addressed the question of President al-Bashir's possible immunity by first looking at whether the host agreement concluded between the South Africa and the AU for the purpose of the AU summit protected him. The chamber said it did not. They then turned to the issue of Article 27.2's application, finding that it excluded the immunity of heads of state, both vertically and horizontally. This was true for states' parties to the Rome Statute and states providing a waiver of immunity. 
As regards states not party to the Rome Statute, the Chamber, along the lines of the DRC's decision, suggested that these states don't have an obligation of cooperation with the court and the irrelevance of immunities based on official capacity as enshrined in Article 27.2 of the statute had no effect on their rights under international law. However, the Chamber resolved the question by once more referring to Security Council Resolution 1593, which not only imposed an obligation of cooperation on Sudan, as the DRC decision had found, but the referral via Article 13b of the Rome Statute triggered the application of the ICC statute in its entirety, including Article 27.2. The chamber noted by majority that it wasn't considering the Security Council resolution to constitute a waiver of his immunity. Instead, reading Article 27.2 and Security Council resolution 1593 together, the chamber found there's simply no immunity to be had. It then moved to the question of Article 98, finding that it provided no right to states' parties to refuse compliance with the court's request for cooperation, and it's for the court and not the state party in question to address the matter. So how do we square this? We see that there continues to be an enormous debate. We have six ICC decisions and two national court decisions. What is the way forward? Well, now we come to Jordan's appeal. Until the ICC appeals chamber was finally seized in 2018 with the question of this relationship between Article 27 and 98 and the core meaning of Article 27, the six pretrial chambers of the ICC that had thus far examined the question each concluded that states' parties to the Rome Statute had an obligation to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir and other heads of state, but they were admittedly inconsistent in their reasoning. Early decisions, Chad and Malawi, we saw relied upon the Rome Consensus and the Nuremberg lineage of the ICC to find it completely obvious that his immunity before an international court could not prevent his arrest and surrender. The later decisions, however, pushed the court's chambers to reconsider their views. The decision of the appeals chamber in the Jordan case represented an opportunity to sort of consider the split between the chambers, if you like, in fuller perspective, and perhaps resolve the question presented in a clear and satisfactory manner. But many of us were worried about several aspects of the case as it went to the appeals chamber. First, it has to be seen that this controversy about head of state immunity before the International Criminal Court has its origin in a political as opposed to a legal question. The history of international criminal law from the Nuremberg Tribunal forward clearly posited the removal of immunities of all kinds from all persons with respect to the commission of the core Juskogen's crimes before international criminal courts. One need only look to the work of the ILC and the establishment of the ad hoc international criminal tribunals, as well as the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals themselves to see this. As the late Sharif Basuni wrote so many years ago after the Nuremberg trial, a new rule of customary international law was established, namely that international immunities do not apply to international prosecutions for certain international crimes. An examination of the text and the negotiation of the Rome Statute, as well as the writings of participants to the negotiations and the reactions of states upon ratification, clearly indicates that states and the negotiators to the diplomatic conference understood Articles 27, 1 and 2 to place the future courts squarely within the Nuremberg precedent and customary international law. And as the International Court of Justice noted in the North Sea Continental Shelf case, there are three ways for a treaty provision to reflect custom. It can codify it, it can crystallize it, or if enough states adopt the position and accept it, it can become and create a new custom. If one looks at Article 27 of the Rome Statute, it seems like a clear example of codification. At most, it would be crystallization. It's equally clear that Article 98's adoption was not meant to undermine the principle that irrelevance of official position effectively removed immunities ratione materiae, as well as temporal immunity from prosecution. 
as I've mentioned already, Article 98 did not receive much attention in Rome. Subsequently, however, with the attacks on the court's jurisdiction by certain governments, the interpretation of Article 98 surged to the fore and really took on a, a principal place in the analysis of the statute. And in fact, following the entry into force of the Rome Statute, individuals finding themselves on the receiving end or potentially uh, on the receiving end of the court's arrest warrants began a concerted political campaign to attack the moral and legal legitimacy of the court and its work. The state sovereignty argument of states objecting to Article 27 is particularly vexing. As a legal matter, the four core crimes embedded in the statute involve Hughes-Cogan's prohibitions that states can't, by definition, contract out of. We know this from the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, as well as decisions by the International Court of Justice. As a trial chamber of the ICTY found in the Ferengia case, a norms use Kogan status results in a series of consequences, including its non-derogable nature, even in times of emergency, the non-applicability of statute of limitations, that it not be excluded from extradition as a political offense, and the prohibition against expelling, returning, or extraditing a person to another state where there's substantial grounds for believing that person would be subjected to a violation of the norm. Another consequence is the absence of immunity. Thus, while the Rome Statute can and does accommodate the needs of state sovereignty to a significant degree, including through the complementarity regime, protection of national security information, and the inclusion of Article 98, it does not and cannot affect the customary international law status of Yuskogan's crimes, but through the operation of Article 27, makes clear that official position that might normally receive immunities under international law in a national court cannot be successfully invoked before the court. Even if the political grievances of the AU member states are legitimate, the position taken by the AU and by Jordan in its an appeal was an attempt to force ICC states' parties, as well as non-states' parties, to assert a right of head of state immunity barring leaders from prosecution before an international court for crimes against humanity, genocide, war crimes, and aggression. Yet, this presents a problem, for the judges of the court have to apply the Rome Statute, ICC law, in a manner faithful to the canons of treaty interpretation that bind them under Article 21 of the Rome Statute, as well as the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. While the text of Article 98.1 is complex and admittedly not free from ambiguity when read in tandem with Article 27, given that Article 27 codifies a rule of custom that deprives individuals from relying upon immunities attached to their position with respect to core crimes, any interpretation of Article 98 must take this into account. Since individuals are not immune from prosecution before an international court for Rome statute crimes, to the extent the individual hails from an ICC state party, they clearly must be rendered to the court as a result of Article 27.2 and customary international law. Because the ICJ in the Eurodia case, recognized the temporal immunity of at least incumbent heads of state and foreign ministers before national courts, presumably somebody like President al-Bashir could not be directly prosecuted in South Africa, for example, should he travel there while still serving as head of state. The question then presented to the ICC is whether the bar to the domestic prosecution applies before an international court with jurisdiction. In this case, the jurisdiction of the court was triggered by the Security Council, which undoubtedly had the power and the authority to remove his temporal immunity to be prosecuted before an international court. Not because the Council is creating a new rule of international law, but because it is enforcing an existing rule. The parameter of the Council waiver are set forth in the Rome Statute itself and in the text of the Security Council resolutions issued by it effectuating the referral. Whether explicit or implicit, it seems clear that the Council, through its referral, is indeed reinforcing the customary international norm found in Article 27 that, if art that official position is irrelevant 
to an individual being charged before an international court. Writers that have asserted the absolute immunity of heads of state under international law are therefore conflating erroneously interstate immunity from criminal jurisdiction of national legal process from the question of that immunity before international courts, and in fact are ignoring the completely different application of immunities on a vertical as opposed to a horizontal level. Let me conclude now by returning briefly to Jordan's appeal of the court's decision of uh, 11th December 2017 concluding based upon the South Africa decision, that Jordan was under an obligation to arrest and to send her President al-Bashir to the court when he traveled to Jordan to attend the 28th Arab League summit in Amman. Jordan was given leave to appeal, and in its brief, it argued that Article 98.1 allowed it to refuse al-Bashir's arrest, that Article 27.2 did not remove his immunity under conventional and customary law, that Article 98.2 meant that the Convention on the Privileges and Immunities of the League of Arab States immunized al-Bashir from arrest and surrender, that the Rome Statute itself cannot impose on or deny rights to states not parties to the statute, which is a reprise to the United States argument of 1998 and the basis of the BIAs, and that Security Council Resolution 1593 did not affect Jordan's obligations under international law to accord immunity to President Omar al-Bashir. If the appeals chamber had accepted Jordan's position, it would have meant that the ICC could not exercise jurisdiction over a sitting head of state without a waiver of his or her state of nationality. Jordan's answer to the impunity presented by its legal position parallels the response of the ICJ in the Eurodia case that immunity is not tantamount to impunity because immunity ratione persone enjoyed by a head of state from foreign criminal jurisdiction ends when he or she ceases to hold office. Jordan's perspective is revealed by its use in its pleadings of the term, quote, foreign court. The ICC is not a foreign court. It's an international court. That requires a very different analysis, and the answer to Jordan's appeal is thus quite simple. Al-Bashir can't benefit from immunity due to the combined effect of Articles 27, 13b, and Security Council Resolution 1593. It is not possible, as one of Jordan's advocates argued during oral proceedings, for the court to ignore Article 27 when it construes Article 98. Each provision of the statute must be read in context and consistent with the object and purpose of the statute, which is to ensure that, quote, the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole must not go unpunished. It's also important to rely upon Article 21 of the Rome Statute, which requires the judges of the court to have recourse to other sources of international law in cases of gaps or ambiguities, such as customary international law. In fact, had the judges of the court adopted any other solution, it would have constituted an ex cathedra pronouncement by them. It would be completely inconsistent with customary international law and Muskogan status of the norms embedded in the Rome Statute. And so I agree, as Professor Klaus Kress noted in his submissions to the court, that customary international law provided the appeals chamber with the key for a legally correct decision. The ICC appeals chamber decided in May of 2019 that Jordan should have arrested Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, but that Jordan would not be referred to the ICC Assembly of States Parties or the Security Council for noncompliance. The appeals chamber did indeed rely upon customary international law, finding not that a rule existed removing his immunity before international courts, but advocating and asserting an even stronger position that, quote, there is neither state practice nor opinio juris that would support the existence of head of state immunity under customary international law vis-a-vis an international court. To the contrary, the appeals chamber insisted, such an immunity has never been recognized in international law as a bar to the jurisdiction of an international court. The appeals chamber noted 
that the burden of proving a rule would be squarely on the party arguing for its existence. This, of course, is consistent with the ICJ's holding in the Lotus case. It noted that the absence of a rule of custom recognizing a head of state immunity before international courts is, indeed, explained by the different character of international courts when compared with domestic jurisdictions. The appeals chamber also found that although domestic jurisdiction constitute an expression of state sovereign power, which is necessarily limited by the sovereign power of other states, international courts, conversely, act on behalf of the international community as a whole. Thus, the chamber rejected the arguments of the AU and other amici who took the position that, quote, the immunity ratione personae of heads of state is absolute, even in the case of genocide, on the basis that any arrest or prosecution will inevitably interfere with their function on behalf of the state for so long as they remain in office. In a curious four-member concurrence, the appeals chamber spent considerable time and effort defining the parameters of what the language, quote, international court means. This was not really necessary to the decision, given that it only had to decide whether the ICC was such a court, which is undoubtedly the case. Because the judgment was unanimous, it seems unlikely this issue will come back to the ICC anytime soon, although it's still obviously under discussion. But there's also a campaign to bring the question to the International Court of Justice. And for this reason, I'd like to finish by taking up just a few of the issues that the appeals chamber decision didn't actually cover. The first argument one could think about is that through the persistence of the arguments raised by the United States and members of the AU, maybe customary international law relating to immunities has actually changed. If state practice is the key to determining the content of a rule of custom, the argument might go, the protestations of a significant number of states could change a rule of custom once created. Thus, even if there really was a rule rendering heads of state subject to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and its cooperation regime at the time of the court's founding, perhaps that custom no longer exists. I think there's several responses to this argument. I'll just take a handful quite quickly. First, the number of states actually protesting is quite small. Even within the AU's membership, a significant number of states have not supported the AU's position on President al-Bashir's immunities. It's also relevant that the Malibu Protocol codifying the new norm has not had received a single ratification, and that the South African and Kenyan courts hearing the cases found no immunity for heads of state accused of Rome statute crimes as a matter of customary international law. Second, this is a, no a use cogens norm, and by its regime, by its status, is non-derogable. The non-conforming practice of a few violators of a use cogens norm should not be the reference, arguably. Rather, the question to be considered is what are the shared expectations and patterns of the community? The appeals chamber explored in its hearing in 2018 what the consequences of Yuskogan status might mean for its opinion, and it's worth noting that the national courts, including most recently Kenya's Court of Appeal, concluded that President al-Bashir did not have immunity because of the Yuskogan's nature of the crimes committed. This leads me to a third point, which is who are the relevant actors for assessing the content of the new rule? And is it clear that they should be heads of state, given that they might be inherently self-interested in the content of the rule? African civil society and two African courts have asserted the continuing validity of the current rule by insisting upon its currency. And in the cases of Kenyan and South African courts, finding their own governments in violation of the Rome Statute in failing to cooperate with the ICC. Fourth, as we've seen with many states, views toward the courts change from administration to administration, suggesting that the rule embedded, uh, the opposition to the rule embedded in Article 27 may not be firm, but varies with the political preferences of particular leaders. To the extent the ICJ was willing to admit of temporal immunities to the prosecution of head state, heads of state for core crimes, it was because in its view, immunity does not mean impunity. Yet in some countries, heads of state often have astonishingly long tenures, amounting essentially to lifetime appointments, a trend that may be growing. Fifth, one could argue for the formation of a regional custom for Africa, 
along the lines decided in the asylum case before the court, uh, International Court of Justice, um, which would permit them to opt out of the regime applicable to the rest of the world in terms of immunity and official position. Query whether such a regime would be desirable for all the reasons uh, discussed above. Moreover, it's not yet been firmly established in light of the Malibu Protocol's non-ratification. Um, and at this point in time, it may be legally impossible given the non-derogable nature of the regime attaching to use Kogan's crimes. Finally, it's true that the ICC Appeals Chamber took the view that there was no rule of customary international law establishing immunities of heads of state before international courts. The ICJ could decide this differently, that there is a rule of customary international law, and it could craft limited exceptions to that rule. That remains to be determined if the case does indeed go to the ICJ. In conclusion, as I have written on many, many occasions in talking about the Rome Statute, one of the core revolutionary aspects of the statute was the transformation by the statute of international legal principles regarding the exercise of interstate jurisdiction in criminal proceedings to international legal principles regarding the exercise of jurisdiction by international courts. This process began during the Nuremberg Trial of, and Judgment, which rejected the failure of 1919 and held that individuals have the international duties which transcend the national obligations of obedience imposed by the individual state, and that states may do together what any one of them might done singly. This idea of primacy, of the law and of the International Criminal Court was built into the statutes of the first international tribunals uh, created after Nuremberg, the ICTY and the ICTR, which had strong enforcement powers as well, given their status as creations of the Security Council. The delegates to the Rome Conference, however, were contemplating a new permanent court that could adjudicate cases in real time, coming from anywhere on the planet. More cautious then than the framers of the ad hoc tribunals, they incorporated provisions clearly embodying the uh, supremacy of the ICC's prescriptive jurisdiction, but limited its adjudicative jurisdiction via the complementarity principle and other complex procedural mechanisms. They were even more incautious still regard regarding the new court's enforcement jurisdiction, about which they were uneasy as evidenced by the complexity of the rules and parts nine that are now creating so much difficulty. Nothing in the negotiating history, however, suggests that they had any intention to limit the application of Nuremberg Principle 3, depriving all before the court of any immunities they might otherwise have under international law. And in fact, Articles 27, 1 and 2, placed as they are in the general part of the statute, are bedrock and fundamental principles of the Rome Statute system. Any examination of Article 98, then, has to start with the premise that Article 27 is essentially of constitutional or primordial status within the Rome Statute itself, as opposed to Article 98, which was meant to have a relatively limited effect, allowing the court to take into account a state's existing international law obligations when considering a request for cooperation. The explosion of litigation and scholarly writings around the interaction of these two provisions sparked by the travels of then-President al-Bashir of Sudan should thus be seen for what they are, an effort to change the customary international law embedded in the Rome Statute during its adoption in 1998 and a frontal challenge to the accountability principles of the Rome Statute. This has not been sparked by dysfunction or inappropriate activity of the court by the fact that the court is, is working, as Bill Pace recently observed. As noted above, just two years earlier, prior to the ICC statute's adoption, the International Law Commission itself indicated its support for a provision along the lines of Article 27.1 and 27.2. Reading the submissions and Jordan's recent appeal, it seems as if Nuremberg and the evils of impunity have been forgotten as states once again rally around their sovereigns as if they were the kings and queens of yore. 
To the extent that the ICC is facing political difficulties, or maybe states are experiencing buyer's remorse, the solution then has to be diplomatic and political. If there are enough voices who believe the court's current interpretation of the interplay between 27 and 98 is incorrect, they can propose amending the statute at the next review conference to include new texts that will explicitly exempt heads of state and presumably a list of other defined persons they believe to be immune from the ICC's reach. If this is the desired outcome, it has to be made explicit not effectuated through judicial amendment of the statute, and states should have to bear the political cost of taking that hard decision. Of course, the new model that they would therefore be proposing has been tried before. It's the impunity paradigm that existed in 1919 that protected the Kaiser. That concludes this lecture. I hope you found it interesting. It was long, but these are very, very important and critical issues for the international community to consider as the Rome Statute continues to play out and states continue to be faced with these difficult questions. I thank you so much for your kind attention and wish you a very pleasant rest of your day wherever you are. Thank you.